Drew, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, man. All right. So for our audience, for the uninitiated, for those who wouldn't know, who are you and what do you do? My name is Drew Vaughn. I'm a uh, photographer. I'm an aviation professional uh, husband. And uh, at the current time, I am the director of sales and marketing for Panasonic Avionics. And uh, I've got the privilege of leading a team uh, and we work on aftermarket sales um, uh, support for airline customers. Okay, cool. All right. I want to get into all that. Uh, where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up actually here in Orange County. Uh, I was born in uh, Newport Beach, grew up in uh, Irvine, and then in my teens, early 20s, I lived in the Bay Area, and uh, then uh, I kind of went on a world tour with uh, my current company, and I ended up right back where I started. Uh, so uh, now I live in Tustin. Okay, cool. So when you were a kid, when you were young, what did you think you were going to do when you, were gr when you grew up? <laughs> Well, if uh, you read the book that I authored in second grade entitled <laughs> All About Me, um, I wanted to be a garbage man, um, you know, and uh, it was actually quite funny, you know, when I had to present my book to all the kids in school, everyone laughed at me and uh, the teacher got furious because it happened to be that her boyfriend at the time was a, a garbage man and uh, in waste management and uh, she made everyone know that he made a lot of money and he had a great job um well, and it is a great job and it's a, yeah it's absolutely a, it's a great profession totally noble and i love in grade two you're already starting shit with people you're creating you're creating beef in the class exactly yeah I was, I was disrupting you know the uh the paradigm of what everyone thought a successful future was good you know? for you man like so, already doing it so, yeah but like you know early age like what were you drawn to where did you think you were going to go when you first started like actually thinking about a career you know, I, I was in a position like I think a lot of others where as you're getting towards the end of high school and you start really having to, you know, you're forced to be in that position of trying to define a path for the rest of your life. I mean, I really struggled to understand what that was. I mean, I, I wasn't very interested in school. Um, I had various interests, but ultimately I felt like I wanted to do something where my strengths could be, you know, um, I think really used for the benefit of myself and others. And so at, towards the end of high school, I mean, I really thought, well, I also want to try and do something that I want to do, something that I'm good at. And I was like, well, I'm good at cooking, you know, and I enjoyed cooking at the time. And uh, I was really good at fixing things and, you know, solving problems. Uh, but I never really had any formal training for, you know, how to actually fix things. Mm -hmm. I just had, I, I guess you could say a natural knack for it. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I, I kind of got to a crossroads where, you know, I was about 18. I was living with my mom. She had decided that she was going to move back to Mississippi. You know, this was a couple years after my parents had split up and, uh, she just couldn't afford to live in California anymore. And I was really kind of forced to make a decision at that point. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I kind of made the decision by saying to myself, well, I already know how to cook. That's a life skill I already have, but I don't formally know how to really fix anything, solve some problems. And so, um, you know, I was watching daytime TV, saw a, uh, infomercial for an airline maintenance school and, uh, took a tour and decided to move forward. So, 
um, you know, uh, I think it really just happened as quick and natural as that. So, and dude, what a cool story. Like, you're just like, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. TV, give me the answer. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, I, I think there was also an element too that, um, you know, my, uh, my grandfather served in World War II and he mm. was an aircraft mechanic. And okay. as a kid, my dad had kind of gifted me all of his pictures, his medals, and, I don't know, maybe there was a sense of an early attachment to kind of the the heroism uh, that, that he had. And I think also just kind of the wonder that aviation has that oh, kind yeah. of stuck with me, you know? And, um, you know, I, I guess I kind of settled with the idea as well that, well, even if this doesn't work out as my career path, at least I have a skill that a, I can use in my own personal life, or B, I can always fall back on at a later time in life. So, so you get into um, being an aviation mechanic, and you went to school, and then you entered into the industry. So, when you were in the industry, because there's a whole other part we're leaving out, you also grew up playing punk bands. Totally. Yeah. Right. I mean, so before we get into the industry, aviation industry, let's hit on that for a little bit. So, how did you find punk and hardcore? Well, I, I guess the earliest introduction that I really had was actually through um, heavy metal. And this happened in the late 80s. Um, my brother had gotten exposed to bands like Metallica, Megadeth, Sepultura, and our parents were very, very against it. And, um, you know, he would sneak CDs home and, and tapes and, uh, you know, it was kind of like a guilty pleasure to go and listen to that type of music. And through that, uh, got exposed to Danzig, the Misfits, the Ramones, and, um, you know, the time I was about maybe 14, 15, got into high school, Rancid was huge in the Bay Area. Um, Green Day was really big. And I think that's where I started to transition more into punk versus metal. And, um, you know, I was very privileged to meet a lot of friends, you know, as I was getting out of high school that kind of guided me in the right direction towards hardcore from, say, the punk and the metal music I was listening to. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, just finding the creative outlet, you know, at Gilman street every weekend and, you know, kind of creating this very unique social life that I had never really had before. It was super exciting. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, so that's kind of how I, I, I came about finding it. What was the band that made it for you? Not just something you listened to, but something that you were a part of. I'd say the, the earliest memory I have that I had stumbled onto something huge was the first time I saw American Nightmare. Mm -hmm. um, it was at iMusicast in Oakland. Uh, uh, let's see, My Chemical Romance was the opening band, believe it or not. And it was a fairly tame show, something I was used to. And as soon as they came on, I was standing back by the merch table. Some dude used my shoulders as a springboard to launch and headwalk into the crowd and it was the most insane thing I'd ever seen. And there was so much energy in the room. That's when I knew that hardcore was just something different that I had ever experienced before. And from that point on, got to meet people, got exposed to other bands, um, you know, Champion being one of them in the early 2000s. And um, 
yeah, just uh, I was exposed to all the record labels, you know, um, and that's how I ended up there. So what about playing in bands? Playing in bands, you know, I had uh, I had started playing drums when I was about 16. My brother was, um, uh, he was really into guitar. He had a best friend that was extremely talented. Um, you know, he would, uh, we'd go on the weekends to Guitar Center and he would play Eruption and have an entire crowd around him. And he was classically trained uh, on the violin. Uh Um, And so I kind of became that supporting member to jam with them in the the garage. Um, And uh, through some of my friends, we had, uh, you know, kind of formed um, just some garage punk bands, never really went anywhere. Um, Got into a metal band that started actually playing shows. And, um, you know, there was probably a good four or five years when I first got into hardcore that I didn't really know people well enough to be able to actually form a band and through kind of a, a series of breakups, uh, you know, of other bands that my friends were in, it was just kind of being in the right place at the right time to come together. And we formed, uh, the band skin like iron. Oh yeah. Which with, I don't believe you were in this, you weren't in this iteration, ended up putting out a record on my record label. Mm-hmm. But you weren't in that iteration, right? No, I had left before that time. Yeah. So, you know, and it, that was an interesting crossroads for me where right around the time that that record came out, I had made kind of the decision to move on with some life choices and some career choices mm-hmm. and had to kind of, you know, really make a decision on putting a majority of my effort into really my career versus say some of my own personal interests. So, um, all right, let's take a step back, man. So the reason I want to tuck into the punk thing is like anyone who's listened to this podcast, you know, I always kind of laugh about it and myself, I'm kind of laughing at myself the most is like growing up punk, punk and hardcore makes you like a professional critic of all things. Oh, totally. They're like the most critical people, like in a good way, cause you notice all the cracks and things, but <laughs> Oh, so super obnoxious way where it's like you've got a lot of opinions on things yeah. and you often feel like your opinion has to be heard because you grew up in a punk scene telling you that. Um, there's not a right or wrong with it. I just always think it's funny when we talk about leadership and especially people who came from punk and hardcore who are now in leadership because I want to know like from your perspective because you got into your what would go on to become your professional career at a fairly young age. So like, at what age were you actually did you take your first professional job as a mechanic? So let me see here. I, I actually got my first job in aviation in 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, kind of post 9-11, uh, uh, you know, maintenance jobs were still relatively hard to come by for mm-hmm. folks that were straight out of school because right. there was still such a huge market of mechanics that had gotten laid off. And uh, so I started in a parts room. You know, I was handing out parts to, to mechanics and uh, doing inventory and, um it was about 2005 that they had discovered that I had my license and they actually pulled me out to become a full-time mechanic. So 2005, I started in maintenance and, um, I was with that company for about three and a half years as a mechanic. Um, so yeah, I'd say 2000, 2005 is when I really kind of entered into, I think the world that I'm in now in airline maintenance and technical operations. So like from a punk's perspective and like, 
those early, like when you started in the, when you started like in, and uh, sorry, was it like the tool shop? Did you say? Or the, yeah, it was like, it was like a tool shed and tool a part shed. shed. Yeah. yeah. A, a tool and part shed. And then eventually going to becoming a mechanic. What were some of the formative moments for you where you first started having like bosses basically, and you were learning about leadership either like, Oh, Hey, that's what good leadership looks like. Or like, Oh, that's what terrible leadership looks like. I don't think I had a lot of that in my first job because, you know, we, um, I would say that there's a very clear division between management and leadership. And I, I think in my first probably five years as a mechanic, I was being very managed. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, uh, I didn't really have, uh, I think a mentor who was a leader to me. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I don't think it was until really probably 2009 mm -hmm. that I think I really felt like I was being led rather than managed. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, for me, I think that the difference was there was rather than being driven to complete tasks, mm -hmm. it was more, you know, I'd say, uh, I was presented with more challenges around creating solutions and seeing the bigger picture. You did take something up from your early experiences because you identified the difference between like management and leadership. And yeah. I'm a firm believer uh, in there being a difference. Would you mind if I shared it? Absolutely. Um, if you're managing people, you're just managing their workflow. If you're leading people, you're responsible for their development. A hundred percent. And like leading people can be like managing the road. Like there is a part of that and like directing and, and any of those things, but it involves like coaching. It involves giving people stretch assignments. It involves like giving people like the spotlight at the right time so they can kind of see what that's like. It involves opening up avenues for people that might scare them and they might retreat from it. And then you encourage them to go forward or they retreat from it and you say, hey, that's okay, let's go to somewhere else. Or you give them an avenue and they're like, that's it, that's the thing. Being a leader is about being with people. Being a manager is about directing people. One of the, I think the, the key differences that I see there as well is when you're a manager or if you're being managed as an employee, you are a piece of human collateral. Yeah. You were there to complete a task and that's it. Um, in 2019, um, I was able to join a Panasonic Leadership Summit and uh, our keynote was done by Bob Chapman, mm -hmm. who's the CEO of uh, Barry uh, Weimiller. Mm -hmm. um, and he does a lot of speaking about a concept of truly human leadership. Mm -hmm. And the way he defines leadership, uh, at least as part of that conversation was, is that leadership is really the stewardship of the people that you're entrusted to lead. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think when you make that switch to, you know, really taking responsibility for the livelihood and the career of the people that, that work for you and work with you versus purely outcome-based leadership of just trying to achieve a certain goal, um, the rewards both personally and for the folks that you have the privilege to lead is exponentially more significant. Um, you know, um, I, you know, I, I find that 
where I've been successful in leadership, and it took me a long time to realize this, was, you know, I, I always felt that um, a good leader was one that was able to convince others to want to work for them or work with them rather than forcing them to do so, right? And now I found that, you know, some of my successes in being able to achieve that was not necessarily convincing others that um, they could complete a task or they could achieve an outcome, but more so that their individual and unique contributions were critical to the success of a certain project. And that at the end of the day, their livelihood and their happiness was the number one outcome that I was looking to achieve. Hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah, man. Um, I'm going to share a philosophy I have with you, if you don't mind. Sure. So, you know, there's this like whole thing about um, retention right now, like pe whatever people want to call it, the great resignation or whatever it is. And I'm not saying it's not real because I know people are, are leaving jobs and um, for all sorts of reasons. One of the ways that I encourage people to look at um, like uh, attracting and retaining people is I believe that people look at things from a scale of four things and starting with the most important, the least important. And those are the things that are indicators of someone staying at a job. The number one indicator in my belief of someone wanting to stay in a job is their relationship with their boss. 100%. But I don't mean do they think their boss is awesome, like a cool person, do they yeah. like them, is the boss funny? In fact, I know a lot of people who are like, actually, I like my boss a lot, but man, they suck, they're a terrible boss. Yeah. Um, so it's not about your boss being cool, funny, like someone you can chop it up with. More so, it's someone who um, is invested in you. Yeah. Uh, they, and again, they don't, you don't have to like them. You might find them a little intimidating or maybe they're a bit abrupt, but they're invested in your development, give you great opportunities. You learn things from them. You stretch. They inspire different kinds of thinking. They give you the opportunity to inspire different thinking in them. Yeah. Like that investment, people will stay in jobs forever if they have a great boss. Yeah. So that's number one. Number two is um, the people you work with. But again, not like, are they cool people? And, you know, I don't want to say the company, the idea of company culture isn't a good thing because I think it's a super good thing. But I'm not even talking about company culture. What I'm talking about is do the people you work with enable you to do your best work? Is your uh, is the connection that you have with them is like the 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 sum is truly greater than than each of the individual parts like. Do you have that kind of connection where you stretch each other, challenge each other, take each other to new heights, do your best work together? If you're part of that, you're reticent to leave a country, a company. Yeah. The third thing is, um, do you like your work? And I know that sounds super wild that it'd be that far down on the list, but like in North America, we've got this idea that like everything should be perfect. Like yeah. you have a great boss, a great team. You should love your work. You should get paid well. That's like dream job. Very few people have that. I totally agree. Um, you can actually have a job that maybe you don't actually like the thing that you do, but if you have a very cool boss, like a boss that really invests in you and you've got a great team that enables you to do your best work, what you do is actually less important. And the last thing that I think people care about is how much they get paid in their benefits and also including their work-life balance. It's like, it's the thing people talk about the most. Yeah. Uh, Cause it's the easiest to talk about, but I think it's the last uh, indicator of keeping of attracting people and keeping people in the company. Yeah. You know, one of the things that, um, that I kind of learned from one of my mentors is every person has their own sense of 
professional uh, currency. Mm -hmm. What is important to them? For some people, that may be, as you said, money, work-life flexibility, things along those lines. But I think most people, that is not their primary currency. I, I think that, you know, people are eager to be a part of a team, have a sense of value within an organization, and also have an outlet where they're able to grow, I think, professionally and as a person. I mean, and that's not to say that they're just looking to move up the ladder, but they're looking for opportunities to expand, you know, their skill sets. Uh, expand their experience, um, gain a lot more maturity in the skills that they already have today. And by facilitating that and by offering that to, to you know, the, the, the team that you have, you know, I, I think that you'll find a lot more fulfillment that can overshadow things like you've said, money, you know, flexibility, vacation time, things like that. So. Well, and I, I love what you just said there that like, I like the term professional currency. Because, um, you know, I don't know if you ever heard like, uh, and I don't know if they still had it, but Netflix had a kind of um, uh, take whatever vacation you want policy. Yeah. And I remember at the time hearing it and being like, whoa. But also like, you know, we have a policy like that in, in our company. And like, it's not the policy that matters. It's that we actually have to kind of force people to take vacation because they're actually super into their job. Yeah. And they like what they do or, and might even, maybe they don't like what they do, but they like you like what you do, right, Spencer? Yeah. Okay. But, Good. All right. But, but they like who they do it with. They like being part of the company that we have to like remind people like, hey, you need to take vacation. Having a policy like like vacation or how much money you make, yeah, that's cool. Those are all, all nice things, but it's not what people care about or few people. I, I like that idea of uh, professional currency. It's a, it's a good one. So if we think about, and sorry, you want to add anything? I was just going to say, yeah. I mean, what that also does though is, you know, Aside from giving people time with their families and, and, and time away, that also offers a sense of security, right? And that's an intangible, you know, benefit that you can't measure with money and things along those lines. So totally 100%, yeah. man. Um, all right. So you get into being a, a mechanic and then what happens next in your career? So, I mean, really, as an aircraft mechanic, your paths for growth are becoming a lead mechanic. I did that. You start to work on more sophisticated or larger equipment. You know, I went from working at a cargo company uh, to working on um, private jets. Um, and as you kind of go up those levels, the stakes get a little bit higher. Uh, the standards of your work, uh, you know, also the, the demands get a little bit higher. Um, but beyond that, I mean, really your paths for growth are in just management of operations. Um, in commercial aviation, um, there, I, I think, are a lot of there are a lot of more diverse paths that you can go. Um, you know, when I started my current company, I was just an aircraft mechanic. Um, and, you know, after I had demonstrated a, a pretty high level of competency in a very short period of time on their systems, you know, um, I was kind of adopted into their field engineering program. And, uh, you know, the way I kind of looked at it is I was not a computer nerd. I was not an engineer by trade whatsoever, but I understood systems. I understood problem solving. And, uh, you know, after 
a lot of weekends and nights, you know, looking at YouTube videos on how to work Excel formulas and, you know, learn uh, Linux. I mean, I was able to fill the gaps of, you know, the experience and the knowledge set that I didn't have to, to be a valuable contributor to that group. Mm -hmm. And so um, kind of tying back to the whole uh, punk scene, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think one of the the skills that I learned um, that's probably one of the most valuable skills that I've brought into my career is adaptability. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, when you're in a band, when you're on tour, you get thrown challenges all the time. And, you know, one of the things that I, I think that one of the uncomfortable situations that, that forces you into is the consequences that are, you're going to face in the immediate term. You know, if my van breaks down, I'm not going to make it to this show. The entire tour as a project plan, if you will, is going to slide to the right, you know? And um, so I think that that adaptability and, and being forced into uncomfortable situations kind of gave me, I think, the the drive that I needed to identify the gaps potentially in my career and work to fill them on my own in the absence of a formal education. Well, and man, I love what you're saying. So um, friend of the show, uh, Dan Smith, uh, Capture Tattoo and ta Capture Tattoo, and you're wearing, mm -hmm. wearing the merch there. We were talking about your episode and he's like, actually, I think one of the coolest parts of Drew's story is how he literally worked his way up, but also kind of took charge of his own development in a lot yeah. of ways. And it's similar, I guess, if you think of maybe like a tattoo artist, it's like, there's not like a tattoo artist school that you're going to, you've got to like totally. own your craft and be responsible for it. So I, I think that's part of why, why he finds your story so interesting. But at what point did people did it go from you kind of identifying your own gaps? And I love the punk analogy, by the way, because I think that's that's dead on. Where did it go from uh, identifying your own gaps and addressing them to uh, the company going, huh, actually, no, we're going to start investing in you? I think that when I first made that jump into our engineering group and um, – I started to identify the gaps that that I had at that point in time. I I was troubled with a lot of self doubt. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I I felt like I was in over my head. Mm -hmm. I was in a position that I was not qualified to be in, mm -hmm. and I had accepted a role that I was a hundred percent going to fail in. Mm -hmm. And you know, I at that point, you know, I, I mentioned it earlier. This is where I kind of transitioned from you know, being in a band and managing a career to, you know, a point where I had this opportunity and I really, you know, saw this as this is, you know, really a, a point where I need to invest in this career as my livelihood. You know, I mean, I saw that there was opportunities beyond just being an aircraft mechanic. And that's where I feel like I really just was 100% invested to uh, really trying to develop myself to be successful in the role because I kept telling myself there's no way that I was going to be successful. And, you know, after probably the first year or so when I started to really truly see that not only was I meeting some of the expectations, 
but actually exceeding uh, them. And as I started to see that I was really, or that my leaders were really giving me the confidence to be involved in more executive level and higher level decision-making, um, I think that that's where I really decided to kind of go all in and understand that, you know, it wasn't just kind of my efforts at that point um, that I'm trying to think of a way to explain it, but it, it wasn't necessarily just my own efforts that were taking over. I started to see that my mentors at the time were actually leading me down a path, even though at that time I couldn't see that they were kind of clearing the path for me. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that came through them constantly giving me bigger challenges every single time, you know? And even though I was still fueled by kind of self-doubt and low confidence, you know, I mean, every single time that I was able to, you know, meet a challenge or accomplish a goal and there was a bigger one on the horizon, that's when I started to realize that in a way my potential was a lot wider than I had ever thought. Yeah. And man, and that's such a cool thing. Like, so it, it sounds like at one point, you were like, okay, I'm doing all this pushing, I'm pushing, and only to realize, well, actually, I'm kind of getting pulled as well. Exactly. Yeah. And there's that like middle point where like maybe my effort and their effort are actually we're in sync now. They're yeah. pulling and I'm pushing. We don't always get the chance of having people being invested in a, in us like that, though. So it sounds like you were just in like a super cool situation. Yeah, I I think that you know, a I was very lucky to have the opportunities to work with some of the people that uh, I'm still very happy that I have the opportunity to work with them today. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it was really, um, timing, um, you know, um, both in my personal life and having the ability to focus on, um, you know, I think my future and my career, mm. um, and also taking advantage of the wealth of, I think, opportunity that other people were feeding me, uh, you know, at the time. So, um, that idea though, of like pushing through, um, self-doubt. So, uh, people are always surprised. Well, not always people can be surprised when I tell them that I, I live with a huge, huge amount of self-doubt and um, a lack of confidence. But for me, it's never a confidence in whether or not I can do something. I never doubt that. Could I go and write uh, a record on the level of a Walter Schreifels? Probably not. Like, you know, and like, I'm pretty confident I can't do that. And I guess maybe I'm just good at kind of like scoping in what I can and can't do. Like, yeah. I don't think I could do that. Could I go, uh, like we just talked about Dan, could I go give a tattoo or learn how to tattoo at that level? Absolutely not. <laughs> I've got no ability to do it. But the things that I think are relatively within my realm of possibility, I'm totally confident I can do it. Even if they're like big level, like, could you do that? Like, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm absolutely completely positive I could do it. Yeah. Where I struggle uh, and where I have confidence is about, um, am I doing the right thing by people? Am yeah. I having the right kind of relationships with people and both personally and professionally? Like I, I struggle with quite a bit of um, like, uh, I guess maybe I could lightly say like social anxiety, yeah. but most people wouldn't know that about me because I always seem at ease when I'm around people. Yeah. But in reality, I'm like doing a lot of work to be present in the conversation. So I know on my end what it means to like work 
through self-doubt. When it's outcome focused, no problem. I know I yeah. can crush that. But if it's like, am I a good leader? Am I a good friend? Am I a good partner? Like that's where I feel a lot of uh, self-doubt. Where do you feel self-doubt? You know, there was a period of time where I, I, I feel like I relate to you on all of those levels. I mean, um, throughout my life, I've never been the best at anything. Mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's a lot of times where I'm not even good at a lot of things. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think for me, um, I've used self-doubt as a fuel in a way to continually push you know, the boundaries of what I think I can accomplish, the quality of my work. And also I think just the awareness of how I carry myself with others. And um, I really feel like in the last several years, as I've started to see maybe some of the positive consequences of, you know, my, my leadership style rub off on others and not even just you know, um, team members that report directly to me, but others that I interact with. Mm-hmm. I think finally coming to a self-realization that that self-doubt that has shaped how I work with others and seeing the results of how that has positively influenced others has maybe allowed me to manage the self-doubt a little bit more. Um, it's It's turned what I've taken as, you know, I use that self-doubt as a a fuel to accomplish an outcome or a task to, you know, almost in a way, an obligation that I need to carry on with the same level or higher than what I'm, where I'm performing today, not necessarily for my own career path anymore, but I I think really more so for the benefit of others that I work with, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, um, one of the the big challenges that especially that we've faced in in the aerospace industry and in aviation has been, you know, the recent pandemic. And, um, you know, it's been a very, very um, difficult time where, you know, we've had to make humongous reductions to, you know, at the airlines, all of the, the suppliers, the OEMs, um, people have been working themselves to the bones for two years now. And, you know, there have definitely been times where I've wanted to succumb to just fatigue, um, self-doubt that I am the right person and and I have the capabilities to contribute to my company to overcome, you know, the the issues that we're facing. But I think more so now I look at it as, you know, I have to put that self-doubt aside and I have to manage that because other people are depending on me to lead them through this difficult time. And other people are depending on me to let them know that it's okay to feel overwhelmed. And, you know, it's uh, it, that we are going through a challenging time, but at the end of the day, working together, we'll all get through it. So, Oh yeah. I want to come back to that. Cause I want to, I want to pop back into something and then I want to come back to that. I want to talk about the concept of emotional labor. Are you, are you familiar with that? Loosely. Okay. So we'll, we'll pop back on that. I want to talk about working self through self-doubt. And I found it fascinating because you said it's, it kind of fueled me. Was that intentional? Were you like, Whew, I acknowledge I feel this way and I'm going to, I'm going to like use that to push me. Or was it just like, you just realized in retrospect, it fueled you. Was it intentional or in, do you realize that in retrospect? 
I think that there was a period of time where it was 100% intentional. Nice. Um, so how did you do that though? How did you harness it like that? Because that, that to me is like a fascinating idea. For me, I mean, looking back at it now, and I think it was very, I was very aware of it at the time, but, you know, um, as I was growing within my company, as I started to see more opportunities on the horizon, both for my own personal professional growth, um, I was also at a period in my personal life where um, uh, my my now wife had just moved down to Atlanta with me because I was, uh, you know, I was living there at the time, um, and actually my company had moved her down with me because they wanted me to to fill this role, uh, um, and that was the only way that uh, I said I was ever going to move is if they moved my wife, and I felt a certain sense of responsibility at that time that it was no longer just about me, um, you know the career path that I was going and the personal growth that I was pursuing was now supporting a family with me and my wife. And, um, you know, around that same time, um, you know, my, my mother had passed away. I lived very far away from the rest of my family. I had just moved my wife away from her family. And so there was a tremendous sense of responsibility that came that, you know, I can't screw this up. You know, this is an opportunity that if I harness, not only am I benefiting my life now and my future, but I have to think about my family now. And I think that having that, you know, I guess the tremendous weight being put on my shoulders at that time, that is where I, re that's really why I took that self-doubt and use that as fuel to, I, I, I guess, continue to grow because at that point it was no longer, it wasn't a choice anymore. Yeah. You know, it, it, it was an obligation. You know, I had a family now I, I, you know, and I grew up in a very traditional American home where, you know, my, my dad, you know, would teach us very strict manners. You know, we had to hold the door open for my mom everywhere that we went. We had very strict table manners and, you know, I, I think even though I had observed that throughout my life, that sense of responsibility had never truly hit me until that point. And so that's where I kind of realized that that self-doubt, you know, again, I could use that as a fuel and I had to, you know, so. Can I give you a, a concept to like a framework to put into that? Sure. So when I look at motivation and this is like really like a basic way of looking at motivation. And then of course, like you, the more you get to know someone or someone gets to know themselves, you can get more complex from here. But if we think of it from a very basic way, people can motivate them in what I call um, avoidance-based uh, motivation or achievement-based motivation. And kind of traditionally, I call it like negative motivators or positive motivators. Yeah. But I've been moving away from using negative or positive because people are like, I don't want to be negatively motivated. It doesn't mean you're evil, yeah. <laughs> like you're a terrible person. It's just ways of thinking. Yeah. So um, avoidance-based motivation would be, let's say, and I'll just use self-confidence as an example. So if you're, you're self-confident, you're, you're, um, you got some self-doubt yeah. in it. Avoidance-based thinking or negative motivation would be, I don't, I, I don't think I'm going to, I'm good enough for this. Yeah. I don't, I don't think I can hit the mark. I think I'm like over my head, you know, maybe I'm not smart enough, fast enough. Maybe I don't have the grit for it. Um, 
I want to avoid failing. So the avoidance is about you use that that feeling, that self-doubt to fuel your energy into not failing. Yeah. But you're avoiding something. Yeah. Achievement-based thinking, or what I call positive motivated or motivators, are people that would run a race not to win the race necessarily, but just to beat their last time yeah. or to have a really good time. They're not trying to avoid something. They're trying to achieve something, but yeah. that achievement doesn't have to be some super huge thing. So again, let's, let's say if it was someone like lacking a little bit of self-confidence, they'd be like, hey, I want to prove to myself I can do it. Yeah. Right. And so you could have one, you could have two people, both like a lack of self-confidence. One's like, I want to avoid failing. Someone else is like, I want to, I want to prove to myself that I could do it. There's not a right or wrong. And people can have different elements of that in different parts of their lives. You can transition to different kinds of thinking in different ways. But if you were thinking at that time in your career, were you more negatively motivated, like uh, avoidance, like I want to avoid failing and letting everyone down? Or were you more achievement positive based being like, I want to prove this to myself? I'd say 100% it was avoidance. Um, <laughs> you know, very early on in my career, I remember very vividly, I um, um, I had worked on an aircraft that had a very complex issue. Mm -hmm. um, it was well beyond a remedial task that I was used to doing. And um, I fixed the issue, the aircraft flew out and it came back in. And I remember watching the airplane land and I, I felt a great sense of accomplishment at that time, right? You know, I had, I had fixed a problem. I, I felt a sense that, you know, in a way I'd almost saved a life because it was a, a, a huge safety issue. Yeah. And my supervisor at the time, you know, said, forget about it. There's no glory in aviation, you know? And really the, the reason why he said that was it's a 24 seven operation that never ends. If you overcome, uh, you know, uh, either a challenge or you achieve a major accomplishment, there's always something the next day. There's always going to be another problem on the horizon. And, um, you know, a lot of what I do today is, is not necessarily about achieving a massive goal. It is about reducing and mitigating risk. Mm -hmm. And so sadly, uh, you know, I am more prone to, you know, be in that negative space mm -hmm. of avoidance mm -hmm. rather than, you know, um, achieving, a, you know, achievement. Yeah. Um, there have been times, you know, very, I'd say few occasions where I've worked very complex projects with teams where we had a very clear goal in mind. And I think, you know, at the end of those projects, definitely there was a great sense of achievement that we were able to accomplish. But sadly, I, I think just based on the nature of, of my work, it's more avoidance based. Well, and when you say sadly, that's, I want to push on this because it's yeah. not a good or a bad thing. The way, the reason I break it down is because it can have bad elements because people who, um, who live with more avoidance based thinking can have like a higher level of self-doubt, anxiety, you know, depression. Um, but they can also be like really unbelievably uh, unbelievable at finding the issue yeah because they're they want to avoid failing or they want yeah. to avoid letting people down or avoid catastrophe what it is so they're like hyper focused on the details flip it people who are more positively motivated um typically have um a little bit more joy in what they do they may be a little bit more easygoing um you know they're uh less reticent to take a risk you know they'll take a leap they'll go do this thing because yeah. they've got that confidence 
um, but a piece is that they can even easily overestimate their own ability or skills. Yeah. Uh, they aren't always very detail oriented, so they could just be like, ah, it's fine. Yeah. And they can be a little less, um, they tend to not be as high in empathy. So they don't have a great read around. So, cause someone who's avoidance space is like really good at reading people. Yeah. Um, someone who's more positive based just assumes everyone's going to go along with them and they can be a little less, uh, thoughtful to the impact of what happens to people around them. Yeah. There's not a right or wrong. It's yeah. a, it's totally thing myself. Primarily I'm like avoidance, uh, based motivator, but not in all areas. So like, um, in how we build the company, I'm very avoidance based. Like, uh, I don't want to fail. I don't want anyone who's taken a risk in their career to come with me to like yeah. not have a job. I don't want us to go out of business. Um, I don't want someone to come in and feel they didn't have a good experience or didn't learn or didn't grow. So it's all like, I don't want to be like that. And it yeah. fuels what I, what we can be. But if you think, if I think about things like athletics, you know, like you know, I'm trying to coax you into doing this triathlon with me. Um, I don't care about if I couldn't finish a triathlon, I would feel 0% bad about it. So yeah. it's not about avoiding failing. I just want to beat my last good time. Yeah. Um, or I want to do as good as before, or based on the fact that I'm a bit out of shape right now, I just want to complete it. Yeah. You know, but mostly I just want to have fun with my friends. I want to go, go with two guys that, um, I've gotten to know a bit over the years, you know, like invest in our friendship, have some fun. Like yeah. I just want to have a good memory. Yeah. Right. So there's no avoidance base there. It's all achievement based. I want to achieve something fun for everyone. Um, and it can be different in different places in your life. I know the one where I feel like I'm going to let people down is where I get avoidance-based, and it's not bad at all. In fact, avoid, being an avoidance-based thinker has made me ultra-sharp yeah, uh, and able to do uh, things in a, um, in a way that I think is very, very, very precise. Um, but now let's hop forward. Let's talk about leading people through this time that's been really difficult for your industry. Um, what kind of wear and tear has that had on you from a leadership perspective? Well, I, I think that the wear and tear on me specifically and, and what I think myself and other leaders have experienced is the fact that um, with the tremendous amount of uncertainty, you know, people tend to kind of go down very dark paths in their mind, right? I mean, about their own outlook and their career. Um, about the longevity of our industry and their own position in the company. Um, and, you know, the daily stress of having to work 10 times harder than you ever had to work before. Over time, it becomes just extremely challenging to keep your motivation and, uh, you know, a positive outlook um, after, after so long. I mean, you know, in the early onset of the pandemic, I mean, I had to motivate my team out of kind of necessity that, you know, we were pretty much working all morning, all day and all night to really mitigate risks and, and carve out a future where we could survive, not even be successful, just survive. Yeah. And um, as the industry started to recover, um, and we were now being presented with the great opportunities of new business, managing that along with, you know, two years of fatigue and frustration and, you know, emotions of having to lose people and, uh, 
you know, uh, potentially all, you know, all the stresses in your own personal life with the pandemic and the impact that that's caused your family. I mean, I, I found that it's been incredibly challenging, um, even for myself. Mm -hmm. And I think that for me, my, I think that my experience with, I guess, understanding responsibility has led me to have to push that aside and really support my team in, in getting through this time. I mean, there have absolutely been times where, you know, they've had to raise their hands and say, sorry, I just can't do this anymore, mm -hmm. you know? And sometimes, you know, the answer to that is, look, take a week off. It's, you know, it's, it, I know it's last minute, but if you truly need time, I will step in and I'll help you out. I'll take on your work for the next week or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that one of the the benefits that I've had in a lot of different positions that I've held is when I've had to lead a team, you know, I've always at one point kind of been in roles of other people to where I think that I have a unique level of empathy to understand the challenges that they face. Mm -hmm. Um, to where, you know, I'm not just a manager or someone one step up in the reporting chain that's telling them what to do. You know, I, I've been right beside them, you know, in throughout a lot of these challenging times. Um, and I found that that has been extremely beneficial in, I think, buying patience, buying the trust of people that even though the world is crashing down around us, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I tell them, everything's going to be okay. We've got this. Um, I, I think that that's, that's been extremely successful in keeping people motivated and still with me. And I think also, you know, I found that, you know, one of the lessons that I learned early on in managing people is, you know, for me, one of the top, I guess, behaviors that, that I need to, um, you know, really represent for my team is that I have their backs. Um, and I think that showing people that even through these challenging times, that someone has your back when you are having times in, you know, or experiencing times of lack of motivation, burnout, you know, contention and, and, you know, resentment against your company and, and the, the challenges that that's creating in your own personal life. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's been really beneficial. So how have you taken care of yourself though? Um, and, and I'm, I'm leading us to a place here where I, I want to tap into something that, um, I believe is true about you, but I, I want to hit on it in a minute, but how have you taken care of yourself during all this? Cause everything you just said is about other people, yeah. which is great. And that's what leaders should be thinking about, but leaders yeah. also have to take care of themselves. So what have you been doing to, to, to do that? I'd say that, well, one of the weaknesses that I've definitely identified both personally and professionally is that I'm tragically selfless. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I am always putting myself as a lower priority over others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that especially over the past few years, seeing the consequences that that has caused me that has then kind of created issues with others that I prioritize before me. I've kind of discovered that without taking care of myself, then, 
you know, I can't take care of others. And if I don't take care of myself, the care that I provide for others is not going to be as genuine or as valuable um, as, you know, um, if I, I truly thought about myself a little bit more, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times that, you know, I've had to make the sacrifice of, you know, I need to work, I need to get this project done, but, you know, I haven't spent an evening with my wife for the past, you know, 10 days, mm -hmm. you know, and what I've had to do in that case is, okay, I'm going to stop at five o'clock. I'm going to spend, you know, take my wife out to a nice dinner mm -hmm. and then I'm going to come home and I'm going to work till four in the morning, you know? And, um, that has, you know, kind of led me to, uh, you know, a challenging place where I, I just have not been able to really, manage the same stress level, the same workload. And, um, I haven't been able to really, I think, capture the same motivation that I used to be able to. So my ability to really keep up with balancing everything has just completely, and, and I don't want to say it's gotten off the rails or it's spun out of control, but I've definitely seen where consequences of not taking care of myself have appeared in how other people interact with me. Yeah. Um, so this is going to go to the thing that I believe is true about you since I've known known you. And, and although we've known each other for a while, it's always been just a, a bit. We've gotten to know each other more over the, over the past yeah. while. Um, but something I've always felt was true about you is you're just a genuinely caring person. Like you literally deeply care about the people around you. You're super humble. Like I didn't even know I didn't even know what you did professionally yeah. until fairly recently, and um, it's just you you you're just that guy that's like so content just to be with people and 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 kind of make things about the group and everyone. You're not seeking that limelight. And by the way, not a negative thing about people who do yeah. seek that. It's just just who you are. Um, with that comes a lot of um, caretaking of others, which is great, but a lot of silent suffering. Totally agree. So you'd mentioned that you have a reduced ability right now to manage. And it's not that the work doesn't get done or anything, but it's just like, you're not as snappy as you are. It's kind of like, let's say a runner who's a great runner, but yeah. maybe had to take two months off for an injury. They're still a great runner, but they yeah. know the difference of when they're running at their peak versus how they're running right now. Yeah. Does that sound right? Oh, totally. And I, I'd say that that's absolutely where I feel like I'm at right now. So, um, can I introduce some, some thinking about that? Sure. Uh, so burnout, Burnout is an interesting thing. So like when people talk about burnout, they usually talk about it in the most like uh, far out way, right? Yeah. And like the most extreme version of it. And it's understandable because we're talking about something that especially due to the pandemic is is much more common, but yeah. really extreme burnout from my perspective is relatively rare. Burnout operates just like, again, this is my thinking about burnout. I believe burnout operates in a spectrum just like most things where there's mild, moderate, and severe burnout. Yeah. I'd say very few professionals experience like severe burnout. Yeah. Severe burnout is more of a mental health event. Yeah. Um, what it sounds like to me is you're probably experiencing moderate burnout, which is serious. It is totally serious. Yeah. Uh, and it is experienced by most high functioning, like high level professionals, people who are like all in, uh, they experiencing it probably within every two to five years. Yeah. Um, especially when they're at like really stressful periods of their career where they've had to really push and um, push through things and manage a lot. And there's not really like that pressure relief valve. Yeah. Does that sound about right to you? Oh yeah, totally. Okay. Yeah. Um, the thing around uh, moderate burnout that is kind of like a, 
so mild burnout is when uh, the way I try and describe burnout is when I talk about the three P's. So mild burnout is when our patterns of self-care drop. And this is like, you know, self-care, like eating right, sleeping well, like spending time with friends and family, exercising. You know, if you think of those four things, when people get mildly burned out, like they're just like burning the candle at both ends, they're working super hard. Usually your patterns of self-care go out the window. Yeah. Right. Like you don't, as you were saying, I haven't seen my wife in a while or spent time with my wife in a while. Maybe I'm not exercising. I'm not eating well. I'm not sleeping well. I'm not being social. You know, you're burnt out when that happens. Yeah. And it happens when it starts becoming the new normal. Boom. You're mildly burnt out. Yeah. Doesn't mean something terrible at all. It just means, oh, you're in a space of mild burnout because your new reality has been taking your patterns of self-care out. If your patterns of self-care remain stable and present, it's very likely that you're not going to fully dip into being burnt out. Yeah. When you get into um, moderate burnout, the P that starts to go uh, start to go there is performance. Yeah. And so that's where there's a spike in anxiety and depression. Yeah. And it can be anxiety or depression, but anxiety and depression are bedfellows. They tend to work together. Yeah. And it just means that our ability to be as engaged with things is reduced because what's taking up a lot of our energy is managing the anxiety and the depression. Yeah. Does that sound? Oh, yeah. I I would definitely say that I've I've experienced that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, when when burnout becomes chronic mm-hmm. um, and you start to see symptoms of disengagement, mm-hmm. you know, not only can you be potentially fighting against, you know, say the self-doubt that you kind of use as fuel to move you along, but, you know, it, you're also battling the negative reinforcement of doing the work that you do. And that becomes a very quick and very vicious cycle because mm-hmm. now what you're doing is as you get engaged, your workload is not going anywhere and you're compounding the problem. Mm-hmm. And that's a very dangerous place to be in because at that point, you know, not only are there potential mental health consequences mm-hmm. and the way that you feel, but, you know, professionally as well, that could in a way be a poison pill you you deciding I don't want to be in this job anymore totally. you know I totally I need to move on you totally. know and um you know I, I've definitely experienced that in, in certain cases mm-hmm. and you know I, I think for me one of the um I think catalysts that I've used to kind of avoid some of that was you know there was a period of time where I was feeling that level of disengagement. Mm-hmm. I was content in how I was performing, at least in the fact that even though I wasn't working as much as I used to, the value of the decisions that I was making, the quality of the work that I was contributing was still enough to at least, I think, fulfill, you know, the my job duties, you know, even above and beyond what the expectations were. But I mean, really, I started to look for that back door to get out, the escape path, right? Yeah. And um, I ended up applying for a role that, I mean, to be honest, I, I feel like I would have done amazing at, but my heart wasn't necessarily in it. Yeah. it, it for me, it was the escape path. It yeah. was the grass is going to be greener because I just have so much negative reinforcement with where I'm at today. Right. And, um, you know, I wasn't selected for this role. And I think at the end of the day, it really didn't come down to, you know, whether I was qualified for it, in some ways I was overqualified for it, but it was a company decision that was made that, 
you know, I was in a lateral or a higher position. Um, you know, by choosing someone else that enabled, uh, a higher career, uh, you know, higher passive career growth for others. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, in many ways, um, you know, it would have been more difficult for them to say, fill my role versus this one that was open. And, um, you know, when I look back on it, part of me also thinks that, you know, really I find, you know, at least in my own mind, the reason why I didn't get the job was I was not personally invested in actually, you know, going for a hundred percent. What it actually was is I was personally invested in getting out of my situation that I'm in now. Right. It was escape thinking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was escape thinking. Right. And, um, you know, so uh, coming to that realization and harnessing that, you know, I ended up just saying, okay, well, look, you know, I'm desperate to get out of the, you know, um, the cycle that I'm in. Um, I, I've taken, you know, I've tried to take an opportunity to get out. It, it, it wasn't the right decision at the time. And I can see that now. And so I've really had to kind of channel that energy of looking for something else. And I actually put that back into actually working with my leadership to say, you know, look, um, I'm not happy in this role. And let me tell you why. Mm -hmm. And having that extremely, uh, you know, honest conversation about not what tasks were, were, you know, uh, I guess harming my perception of the role, but what, um, feelings that I have as an employee and, and really what that came down to was I wasn't able to be an effective leader to my team. Mm -hmm. Um, I think has finally unlocked, you know, maybe some path to improving my condition. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, you know, at that time as well, I mean, um, I was starting to feel the consequences on my health mm -hmm. and, you know, uh, kind of at the same time, I, you know, finally after years get, went to the doctor, you know, and, and did just a normal checkup. You know, I, I started taking care of some of the issues that I had and, you know, um, I feel like everything has kind of come together at once to prepare me for both personally and professionally to, you know, invest in not necessarily my own professional growth, not necessarily the success of, you know, the, the people I'm privileged to lead, but, um, you know, really, I, I think to improve my own personal situation mm -hmm. and that's both professionally and personally as well. And, you know, I, I think that that does tie back to leadership as well in the fact that, you know, at the end of the day, you do need to create a positive atmosphere experience for the people that you work with. And, you know, I, it's almost like I've had to do this for myself. I've, I've had to realize that, you know, I also need to be a leader for my own personal self. Mm -hmm. And I've been absent in doing that for years, you know. Dude, thank you so much for sharing that because like, you kind of, you, you, you headed and you took a leap into where I wanted to go with this is like the selflessness act of leadership is, it, it's cool. It's like admirable. I like it. I, I fall into the same trap, but also it's like vicious. Yeah. Right? And it can put us in these weird situations. I also want to say like that idea, um, well, I'll, I'll give you an analogy. So, you know, and this plays into your, into your industry. You know, when you're taking a flight and the flight attendant is like, hey, if the masks come down, don't put your mask on other people, put the mask on yourself. Why do they say that? 
I mean, ultimately they say that because without addressing yourself first, you can't be effective in taking care of others. Right. And so like airlines are not like anti-child or anti like some exactly. person needs yeah, help. Yeah, yeah. But as a parent, if I was on the flight with my four-year-old, I know if I heard that, I'd be like, whatever. I'm like, I would nod and be like, yeah, but I'd be yeah. like, I'm going to put it on my kid. The reason people, the, the reason they say that is you are a more effective community member of the flight if you are if you are awake yeah. than you have passed out. And it, let's say you put the mask on the child, but you pass out, you have become a far better bigger burden to that flight because a child who passes out can be attended to much more easily than a full grown adult. Yeah. If you have to evacuate a plane, anyone could pick up a child. Yeah. A passed out adult is an immense weight to carry for people. And I mean, small, yeah. big body size doesn't matter. It's like a, if anyone's ever tried to carry a fully passed out person, it is extremely difficult. Even yeah. someone who's a little cognizant can help you just by how they move your, their body. A totally passed out person is very difficult yeah. to move. Well, I'm sure too, as a father, you could probably, you know, uh, I guess it, it, see as well that by you putting your daughter's mask on first, mm -hmm. if you were to pass out, I, I'm sure that let's say it's something were to happen, you know, and you were to survive or not. I mean, the amount, the sense of abandonment that you may feel mm -hmm. by, by helping someone before you help yourself, mm -hmm. um, you know, would be, I think, extremely challenging to, to live with. Totally. Know? Well, and also like from a child's perspective, it'd probably be a lot more traumatic for a, for a kid passing out until they yeah. get a mask on. Yeah. It'd be less traumatic to, to watching your parent pass out in front of you yeah. on, a, on a flight. Yeah. All of this is to say is like for leaders, if they don't take care of themselves, they're constantly putting the mask on everyone else. Yeah. And it makes sense because you're thinking, well, by helping everyone else, I'm helping the community or helping our company. But actually you're setting your the community up from just a pragmatic space for a much bigger labor. Yeah. Because leaders who in this analogy pass out or whose mental health go or physical health go them not being able to be at their best or to have to take lots of time off or to bow out or to, you know, to kind of get into escape thinking. Yeah. That's way more hazardous for the company and for the community. And, and in this case, the, the, for the flight. Right. Yeah. And the idea that I understand why leaders take care of everyone else. I totally get it. Yeah. And it seems like the right thing to do, but you have to put your mask on first. Yeah. You have to. So it sounds like you finally learned how to put your mask on first professionally. I, I, I'd say that, you know, it's taken me a long time, but I, I've definitely started to, you know, identify the consequences of not doing so, both professionally and personally. And, you know, uh, just to kind of expand on that a little bit further, I mean, you know, as a leader, oftentimes you become a, um, you know, a, a an example to others. And, if you're not taking care of yourself, if you're not taking any time off, if you are taking on the burden and the stress of situations on behalf of others mm -hmm. at all times, that inspires others to do the same thing. And, you know, that's, and it's interesting because that's the opposite of what you're trying to do, right? <laughs> you know, and, and you create this culture of, you know, wanting to uh, seek out, you know, uh, difficulty. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting position to be in where as a leader, that's what you want to try and manage and avoid for the people that you have the privilege to lead. And 
you may actually be inspiring that behavior. So, uh, dude, dead on. Yeah. Um, so, can I tuck into the idea of emotional labor? Sure. Okay. So, emotional labor, uh, it's. I, I want to be thoughtful if I talk about it. Like, we live in such a like online time where everybody like. There's just certain terms that like just they just mean what they mean. Like, it, like emotional labor is like some old school psychology. It's it, and it's been kind of. It's been co-opted. It still in many ways means what people think it means. Yeah. But like I'll just go down to the like the most practical psychological meaning of it is if you have a stimulus, something happens. And whether the stimulus is really, really good or really, really bad, our minds instantly make a judgment call. Yeah. And so you've got a stimulus and you've got the way that you naturally want to react to that. And that the way you want to naturally react on it is based on the complexity of how you were raised, all the situations, what you find threatening, what you find funny, whatever it is. There's a stimulus, you've got your emotional reaction to it. Your mind instantly, uh, so there's the emotion, sorry, it's the emotion that you yeah. feel. Everyone has different ways of expressing emotion. So you have the emotion that you feel, then you have your way of you want to express it. But most human beings, not everyone, but most human beings do a scan instantly. What's the environment I'm in? Yeah. So the emotion that I'm feeling, is it appropriate to express it in this environment? So you can yeah. think of like a triangle. It's like emotion, uh, expression, environment. So emotional labor is the idea that you experience something, have a stimulus. It brings up an emotion for you. And you look at the environment and realize this environment, it would not be welcoming to me expressing this, or it's inappropriate for me to express it. And so what you do is you either push that emotion all the way down, you just hold it down there, or you push it halfway down, and then you get it to a place where you've transformed it into something that works for that environment. So the reason it's been a part of uh, kind of normal, or it's been normalized within culture a lot is, um, you know, uh, a lot of marginalized people experience high levels of emotional labor because mm -hmm. we live in a society that has like such high levels of racism, sexism, totally. that people who, um, from marginalized identities, uh, experience high levels of, of, um, prejudice or interactions that, that are the stimulus, they raise an emotion, but also because we live in a society that has high levels of racism, sexism, transphobia, all those things, they're not often in it. People aren't often in an environment where they can express that effectively. Right. So there's a high level of emotional labor. It means they're always pushing down tons of emotion. Yeah. That's where I think you hear people say often, it's like, I'm exhausted. We'll say, yeah. yeah, you're exhausted because you're managing a bunch of stuff that like, you know, like, let's say like a cis white male wouldn't, it wouldn't have to experience as much yeah. um, in North America. So that's more of a modern understanding that is true to it. Um, and I, I think we should honor that if I boil it down though, and take it to a space of leadership at best leaders are experiencing a huge amount of emotional labor at all times. Totally. Um, your, your business setbacks, you know, like for example, like I have to give this person coaching on something. I have to give them feedback. I know they're going to get super defensive. Yeah. Like, oh God. Like, that's the stimulus. You've got your emotion about it. You're like, I can't react to it. So I got to push that down. So leaders are carrying around tons of emotional labor in general, throw in the pandemic. Now it's even more. Yeah. So can I deepen the analogy for you to talk, talk sure. to you about burnout? So imagine you're holding a dumbbell and you're holding it straight out. All human beings can, can manage a certain amount of emotional labor. Yeah. And just naturally you can do it. And for some people it's like a pound. Other yeah. people, it's like five pounds. Other people can manage ton. They've got like an ultra arm. They can yeah. manage tons of emotional labor. 
But for some point, your arm starts getting tired. Exactly. And even if it's you're not maxed out, if you're managing emotional labor for a long period of time, a high amount, and it's near your max, your arm starts shaking. Yeah. Where things get challenging is whether or not people know how to manage their emotional labor or pay their emotional labor. So yeah. if you're managing your emotional labor, that's where the self-care stuff that I talked to you about earlier, like, you know, your pattern self-care. Yeah. It's moving a weight from one hand to the other hand. Yeah. That arm's getting tired, but this one's resting. Then you move it back. If you're good with your self-care, so you have a good diet, you exercise frequently, you spend lots of social time with your friends and family, and you sleep well, you can pass this weight back and forth yeah. forever, basically, even if you're under a ton of stress. Yeah. Um, but most people, their, their patterns start to slip, their patterns of self-care uh, start to slip. When that weight starts to go down is when people start going to different stages of burnout. Yeah. But there's another idea, and this is something I want to circle back to that I, I, I believe is an interesting part for us to talk about. I believe that you can pay off your emotional labor. So it's not like you're perpetually holding this weight that's maxed out. Like the, the impacts of emotional labor like fade over time. You have yeah. good sleep, you know, whatever. But there's always more stresses like we were talking about, more problems, more things on the horizon. I believe you can pay off huge parts of your emotional labor by engaging in meaningful activities. Yeah, you know, and I, I think that this also kind of ties to um, kind of the overall concept as well about work-life balance, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't care what anyone says, no one has the perfect recipe or balance for work and life, right? right. You know, and I, I've certainly struggled with that. In some ways, work-life balance and the tools that you can use to manage some of that mm -hmm. is perfectly translates to the emotional labor concept that you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, to go a little bit further into the point you made, I think that what it comes down to is not necessarily how you balance that time it is are you putting the quality of your own self into that time right it, it. you know i mean if, to use an example i mean you know um my wife has sundays and wednesdays off work and you know lately i've been uh very busy a little bit busier than i normally am and, um, you know, I, I could start to see the signs that, you know, um, she's just been wanting to spend, you know, some quality time with me. And I took a day off. I mean, I was still kind of looking at my phone every once in a while, answering a few high priority things. But at the end of the day, the quality of the time that we achieved, even though it wasn't a certain amount of time every single day, mm -hmm. The day that we spent together and, you know, the the feelings that we both got of reconnecting and making memories mm -hmm. was worth probably four months of, you know, being there at dinner on time every day, you mm -hmm. know? And I think that that can apply to your work as well, right? I mean, where you were putting your quality, um, I think, can help you with those 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 types of uh you know scenarios right i mean yes. passing the dumbbell right yeah. i mean there may be times where yeah i mean you may be shaking a little bit you know and and sometimes it's not about equally passing it back and forth but knowing when it's time to actually you know move the dumbbell dude totally and yeah. i love what you said the quality because like when i think of like meaningful stuff like meaningful results like you know, <laughs> sometimes I said this to someone, they're like, so I should like really 
like clean out my inbox, my email inbox. I was like, is that meaningful for you? They're like, well, no, it's just like, it's just a ton of work that's sitting on my shoulders. I'm like, but is it meaningful? Yeah. They're like, well, no, it's not meaningful for me. I was like, then who cares? Like, yeah. I love what you said about making sure the quality of your time is well-spaced. Like a meaningful result to me is something that fills up my cup and equally fills up someone else's cup. Like um, a meaningful result. So the whole reason I got into doing like um, triathlons or anything like that is it's a meaningful result. I've yeah. accomplished something. Um, I hate writing records, but I like writing a song. Yeah. That's a meaningful result to me. Um, if this might sound odd, but like going and hanging out with a friend and helping them move. I don't like carrying furniture, but like doing something for my friend that I know really matters to them. Yeah. Meaningful result. Meaningful results, I think if you got this arm and even if you're just passing forth, it actually allows you to take some of that weight off and get rid of it. Yeah. So the where I'm going with all this stuff, man, is you have been in such a crazy time. And we all have. So we, we all have. Yeah. But specific to your you know, your career and you've been managing a lot of stuff and you've been like in the fray. What are you doing to take care of yourself? I asked you earlier and you kind of talked around it, but what are you <laughs> doing to take care of yourself? What are you doing to A pass? Pass the dumbbell, the emotional labor dumbbell, so your arms are staying fresh. But also, what are you doing to get those meaningful results? He said one thing, like I'm, I'm trying to focus on quality of time where I place it. Anything yeah. else? I, I think what it comes down to is, you know, um, removing excuses. Mm -hmm. You know, the excuses of this element of my own self-care can wait. You know, um, if I'm going to embrace the concept of putting, you know, investing in my own personal wellness um, or investing, you know, uh, quality time into to others, then I need to remove the excuses about doing so. You know, I mean, um, finally, you know, I guess realizing that, uh, you know, I need to make that doctor's appointment, you know, I, I need to address these things that have had, you know, are small weights that I've been holding on to for some, some time, you know, um, that I guess coming to the realization that those weights exist and that even though I've managed them for so many years, that in order to move forward, it's not about at this point getting stronger or passing, you know, the, the, the weight, if you will, it is about shedding the weights, you know, and identifying what some of those weights are, um, and, and taking those on. I think you lose sight of some of the things that are weighing you down and it's easy. I don't want to say to become complacent, but, you know, put your energy into what is creating the most negative reinforcement at that time, right? I mean, you know, taking care of yourself versus meeting a certain deadline at work. I mean, it's easy to say, yeah, I've got to meet this deadline. You know, I've got to push forward, you know, my career, you know, and the interest of say my company, the bigger picture that I'm investing my, my career into that takes priority, you know, and in some ways, I mean, it's like, yeah, okay, that maybe unlocks your career. That obviously gets you a paycheck. You do need to put some time into that. But I think seeing the positive impact finally of, of actually taking care of yourself and then seeing how that personal investment translates into the way that I interact with others and the way that I lead others has finally made me realize that 
that self-care isn't exactly selfish, you know, and that it's actually a necessary tool that I need to be able to take care of others the best that I can, you know, and, um, coming to that realization has been very difficult because, you know, again, I, I've always been very selfless. Um, and I've always kind of, you know, I, I don't want to say I've, I've bottled it up or anything along those lines, but, you know, and, and my family, I've always been kind of that, you know, uh, that pillar of stability, if you will, both emotionally and, uh, um, you know, uh, I guess from, a career and a life perspective, you know, I've been fairly stable. Um, and, um, yeah. So again, I, I, I think being able to, to again, realize where, um, taking care of yourself is truly taking care of others as well. Mm -hmm. Um, that's been extremely powerful. Hell yeah, man. I, I love to hear it. Um, so in your story, there seems to be a lot of, uh, mentorship. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like, uh, you know, I didn't realize it early on. Um, I felt like I had people that challenged me, um, you know, challenged the way that I thought about certain decisions, certain, you know, projects and, um, how I conducted myself. Um, and what I thought at the time was really, a challenge to accomplish a task in a different way. Uh, really looking back, it was a challenge, you know, to develop my own kind of train of thought, if you will, mm -hmm. right? Um, a challenge to want to take on more responsibility and apply, say, my decision-making skills to um, more impactful projects. Um, and I think that, you know, through various steps in my career where I've reported into different organizations, I've had various leaders um, that have been with me for short periods of time. And I've always tried to really absorb what I think are the most valuable behaviors and skills from a lot of those different leaders. But it wasn't until I actually met someone that demonstrated that they cared more about me than they cared about the job that I did or um, the outcomes that I achieved. Mm -hmm. And, you know, establishing that relationship, um, you know, I think really opened up my eyes to, um, to the whole concept of mentorship. I mean, he, you know, this individual treated me like I was his son, you know, and I love my dad. My dad has been a huge mentor of mine and we come from two very different worlds professionally. Um, but, um, you know, seeing that someone cares and, you know, cares for you personally more so than professionally. Um, and that all of the, you know, I guess coaching that they're giving you while on the surface, it seems like it's in it for your best interest. Really in reality, they know that you can accomplish professionally what it is that, that you're, uh, that you're tasked with doing. Um, but it's more of they're interested in seeing a continued level of development for you to be able to take those accomplishments to a higher level. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that seeing that also allowed me to kind of tailor my own behaviors with the way that I interacted with my team to be able to kind of 
accomplish the same thing, you know? I mean, in, in my early days in managing a team, I was very much a manager and not a leader, you know? I, I thought leadership at that time was, you know, look, I can do the same job as you. I know the challenges that, that you face and I will be there right beside you to do it. And in many ways, I think that that kind of undermined some of the people that I was working with because it kind of appeared as though, well, this guy just, just trying to work me out of a job, you yeah. know? I mean, you know, um, but I think learning that you can work side by side with people, mm -hmm. help them through, um, you know, difficult tasks and, you know, really inspiring people that they have everything it takes to overcome um, very complex, you know, challenges. Mm -hmm. um, just supporting them to help them get over that hill, mm -hmm. if you will, um, I, I think is, you know, Seeing some successes in that realm has, I think, enabled me to identify that I have been a mentor to others without being aware of it whatsoever. Mm -hmm. You know, understanding that people have looked up to me the same way I looked up to my mentors mm -hmm. has really changed the way that that I've carried myself and the way that I've interacted with others. Yeah. And so, yeah, hell yeah, man. So I know something that you've been using that we, we kind of. I don't want to say you've closed a musical chapter in your life, but yeah. you're not playing music anymore. But most people need some kind of creative outlet. Totally. And you found one that's super cool. So what can you tell us about your photography? So, you know, as I started to channel more of my energy into my career versus, say, my own personal interests like music, um, you know, there was a great sense of internal frustration that I felt over time that, you know, I feel in, you know, creative outlets like music or art, you know, there's a certain level of self-expression that is not necessarily a language, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, in, in music, there's an energy that comes with it, right? There's something that has your own personal signature that's like a part of you that you're able to, to really get out. And, um, not having that for a period of time was, uh, you know, it, it became very frustrating, you know? I mean, um, when uh, I don't want to draw a parallel to the shining, but I mean, all work and no play does make Jack a dull boy. And <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I really did feel after a period of time, like I lost a certain sense of my own personal identity because, you know, while I was achieving a lot of great things in my career, I mean, th that's not what I was born to do, you know? I mean, that that did not have my own personal signature to it. And so, you know, I was in a time in my life where I didn't really have the opportunity to be in a band. I still wanted to find a creative outlet and had always been interested in photography. Mm -hmm. And um, as I started to get a little bit more into it and, and taking it seriously. And as I started to get exposed to more professional photographers and artists, you know, I, I started to really kind of understand how I could express myself through picture mm -hmm. versus music or, you know, my own personal career accomplishments. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was an extremely valuable 
you know, I think self-realization and discovery that I could express myself through other creative means than just music. And so um, while I I have started to kind of play electric drums, you know, uh, nowadays I'm starting to kind of get back into revisiting a lot of the music that, you know, uh, I've kind of lost touch with over the past maybe five to 10 years. Um, I still now try and, and, you know, carve out um, a fair amount of time into ensuring that I always have that creative outlet through photography. And, um, you know, very early on as, as I started to, uh, shoot more seriously, you know, I, I won a photo contest through, um, uh, a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that gave me a little confidence that my vision was maybe, you know, translating with others. Well, I, that, you know, the, the vision that I had, you know, was appreciated by others. And I think having that, you know, validation, you know, allowed me to put more effort into it because I'm sure you've experienced it as well, uh, you know, in in your music career and what you do in music that self-doubt sometimes keeps you from wanting to, to, to push forward. So. Dude, totally. Um, and you know, when we were talking about meaningful results, yeah, that to me is a meaningful result. Like you're basically a self-taught photographer, correct? Totally. Yeah. So the exact same way you did your career. You're like, exactly. You went in, you learned the basics, you filled, you kind of identified your own process, filled in your gaps, kept going forward. You've been recognized for it by winning this prize. People care about your photography. Yeah. And, would you mind if I dip in on this for Sure. A absolutely. Like one of the things I, I just encourage people, like, you know, I think we all had a good hard look at ourselves during this pandemic. Yeah. And this one thing I encourage people to do is like life doesn't happen tomorrow or the day after the day after life's happening right now. As I'm yeah. speaking, I'm losing life or you could think I'm gaining something. Yeah. Right. And I, I just really encourage people like I, if I'm stepping back, I went through like a really, really tough time in around 2016 mm-hmm. uh, for a couple of years. And I really, really held up a mirror to myself and like deep, deep, really struggling heavily and it's the first time i ever really thought about death and like you know you have this idea like you live forever yeah. even though you know you don't yeah you live like you do right and that means you waste time you do stupid shit you like get into weird beefs with people you work too hard whatever it yeah. is um but we all die and if anything death should be this great reminder of life and how like yeah. death is actually a good thing because it reminds you to live and to have meaningful results. And so to be able to pay off your emotional labor, you got to do things that are meaningful to you. Yeah. And sometimes that means you got to go find something that's meaningful to you like you did with yeah. photography. I love that. Anything you want to add to that before we keep going? No, I think we're good, man. All right, cool. Um, all right. So as we're closing off, I'm going to ask you three questions okay. and they're going to scale up hard, man. They're going to get way harder. Okay. Um, so in our pre-interview, you dropped some uh, something that I loved uh, to Spencer. Um, why is experience far more valuable than education? Well, I, I come from an interesting background in the fact that I don't have very much of a formal education at all. Um, but what I have come to learn from others that, you know, have multiple master's degrees that you know, have, in a sense, have worked for me mm-hmm. is, you know, I, I think one of the things that you gain from experience that you don't gain from, say, a textbook college education is some of the nuances of the realities that come with 
the working world, the consequences of, you know, that you may face if you don't succeed and the nuances of the pressures that come along with making a decision, you know, and in school you're given a task and, uh, you know, you may have enough time until say your deadline, uh, for your exam or whatever to, to try and work through uh, a complex problem, but without the, say the monetary consequences of, of, you know, a risk that you're looking to overcome or a business decision that you're looking to invest in without the pressures coming down from say executives or, you know, customers that you're negotiating with. Um, I think that not having that exposure or, or gaining that exposure in experience, um, versus education is extremely valuable. Um, so that's, I guess that's kind of top level where I think experience is more valuable. And I also feel like I've seen that as well in my career that, you know, um, I've always felt a little sense of inadequacy in a lot of my, uh, you know, career moves and the fact that I knew I was up against people that had, you know, uh, very extensive and successful academic careers. And, you know, I didn't. And uh, at the end of the day, though, having the exposure to various decision-making, uh, you know, uh, opportunities and gaining the experience and, and really kind of, uh, I think, um, learning from some of the best practices of others um, through my work experiences, I find that that has been more valuable, not only for myself, but valuable in a lot of other people that I think work at an, a very high level with very limited education. Yeah. Um, can I, can I offer someone to frame it up? Sure. Uh, I firmly believe that experience forms you while education informs you. Yeah. And I love being informed. Hell yeah. I love being informed, but I, when you have to go out and do it and figure it out, it forms you in a certain way. Yeah. And someone there might know more about it than you, but it doesn't mean that they're going to be able to be the person who can lead that over the line. Yeah. They, they being informed matters, but being well formed as a leader, I believe is like way, yeah. way more important. And I'll, you get through it through experience. I'll give you an example Please. of where I, I feel like it, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. And, um, I'll kind of give you one of my first experiences kind of in that realm of being, you know, I, I guess experience versus informed is this was in my first job working as an aircraft mechanic. Um, you know, I, I worked at a cargo company where we had small aircraft go out to all these remote airports. And oftentimes if they broke out, they would fly you out on the next cargo flight and then you would have to fly home in that aircraft. So I went out to, I was working in Oakland at the time. I flew out to Sacramento and the pilot dropped me off and basically said, okay, so you're flying home on this aircraft, you know, so uh, you're going to take responsibility for whatever you find here. And, you know, being faced with making a decision of, hey, there's a problem with this aircraft and, and you know, that is truly compromising the airworthiness of it. Mm -hmm. Um, and being, I guess, confronted with, you know, having to make a decision that, okay, I, I, you know, obviously have, have gone to school to get this education, to do what I'm about to do. I have some experience to be able to do it. Um, but having the gravity of, if I don't get this right, 
I could find myself in a, a very, you know, severe situation where, you know, the, the issue that I was dealing with was the pilot reported that there was an engine fire. Uh-huh. And so, you know, the, the idea of I'm either successfully making a decision or I'm going to be flying home on an aircraft that could catch on fire. And <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, that experience and, and understanding, I think, the direct impact and the gravity of what I do was, you know, very essential to shaping the way that I have kind of proceeded in my career, you know, understanding, I think really the gravity of the decisions that you make and the consequences, you know, um, that was an experience that for me, I think shaped the way that I perform my job thereafter, because I had to really put myself in the position of, you know, if I'm going to work on this airplane, I need to be willing to fly in it every single time that I work on it, you know, and have assurance that it is safe for my pilots as if I was flying right seat. So, hell yeah, man, I, that's super powerful. All right, second last question. Okay. You ready? Mm-hmm. Um, if you were thinking about leaders who are coming up, who are someone like you, who's just like a good, kind person, and really about taking care of other people. Um, What's some advice that you could give someone who's who's coming up as a leader who is selfless, but maybe selfless to a, to a, to a dangerous point? I'd say that uh, you know don't undermine the importance of self awareness. I think leaders often are pretty self aware. I think having the capability to lead, you know forces you in a position where you do need to be very mindful of the way that you behave, act in front of others and what you do and what you say. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes I think that that's, that focus is projected more on external actions. Right. And so from what I've learned is that is important, but you can't forget on projecting that focus inwards as well. Because, you know, as we've talked about through my experiences, you can't take care of others unless you take care of yourself. Oh, yeah. All right. Hardest question I'm going to ask you, man. Okay. Top three of all time greatest California hardcore bands. <sighs> any, it, just hardcore in general. You define what hardcore is. You can call any wow. band hardcore. I'm not going to argue. Now, let me just tell you this. People are listening. So choose, choose wisely. Wow. Wow. That is a difficult question. And I mean, yeah, there's no right answer here, uh, uh, but there, but there's many wrong answers. Yeah. Top three, <laughs> California hardcore bands. Okay. Um, I feel your eyes searing in on me right now, man. The whole world is, I mean, for me, I'd say that one of the most influential in, in, my life is instead mm-hmm. um, chain of strength. Mm-hmm. And for me at a very, I, I think formidable time in my life, a band that I was very passionate about was never healed. Mm-hmm. And that's just my own personal preference. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't think that any of those are really to stack up against musical merit or, you know, um, the accomplishments, but more so what those bands mean to me. Mm-hmm. Those are my top three. Well, first of all, Never Healed is sick. Shout out to Casey. I uh, love it. Totally. That. Absolutely. That, that's awesome. That's great. 
Dude, listen, this is a great conversation. Before we close off, where can people find you? Where can they hear about what you do? Where can they learn about you if, and anything else that you want to pump up or uh, promote? I mean, uh, professionally, uh, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, uh, personally, you know, I, I put a lot of uh, my own personal passions into my photography. Mm -hmm. um, so you can find me at, uh, at Can We Call This Life? Mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah, you can find me on this podcast. Drew. This was an incredible conversation. Like when I asked you to come on, you seemed a bit reticent, like, oh, I don't know if I got something to add. This was an incredible conversation. <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. And uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm glad that, you know, we had this, this time to really, I think, share our experiences because, you know, um, one thing that, uh, you know, I, I, I guess kind of tying back to our conversation is oftentimes I haven't been aware of how my experiences can be valuable to others. Mm -hmm. And, you know, seeing that now, I certainly look back and wish that, you know, um, I had that sense of, uh, I guess, uh, access to, to folks in my position now to kind of help me through, I think, especially some challenging time in my early 20s, you know, where I was having to define a career and make a decision on, you know, what I was going to do for the rest of my life. So, um, but, uh, but yeah. Heck yeah, man. Well, listen, um, everyone I'm going to see in the outro, Drew, you're the best man. Thank you so much. Let's, Thank you. Appreciate it. Let's do that triathlon. Okay. All right. Uh, everyone I'll see you in the outro and Spencer, drop the beat. What?